Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and this is a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Prometheus, the new Ridley Scott sci-fi blockbuster. This is also my first ever remotely recorded Spoiler Special podcast. I'm taping from WBEZ Studios in Chicago, where I came to do a live podcast, a film spotting podcast with Adam Kempinar of Film Spotting. Hi, Adam. Hello, Dana. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, we decided to go ahead and, and spoil remotely because if there's one movie coming out this summer that absolutely can't really be talked about without without spoiling, it's Prometheus and right. also just one of the most hyped, one of the most anticipated. And as I was coming to Chicago to do your live show with you, I was thinking, oh, the only downside is that I can't spoil Prometheus. And then I thought, what am I talking about? I'm going to Chicago to hang out with movie geeks. Of we have mics here. Yeah, right. we We've can got do radio it. stations I'm, and everything. I'm a little bit nervous, though. I really have no idea what's going on in Prometheus. I thought we were spoiling Madagascar 3. <laughs> Is this not the Madagascar 3 spoiler special? In fact, Adam, I think if you brought the analysis of Madagascar 3 to this spoiler, it might help explicate Prometheus better than Prometheus itself does. Indeed. So so first, let's try to get through just a thumbnail sketch of the story of what happens in Prometheus, and then we can get to some some major spoiling. So Prometheus is the first sci-fi movie, this is true, right, that Ridley Scott has made in over 30 years? Since Blade Runner, 82? He hasn't made anything that could be classified as sci-fi since then. I don't think so. Because he's been pretty productive, but I guess he's worked more in the action movie Mm -hmm. kind of drama genre, right? He made Thelma and Louise, Mm -hmm. which I think is maybe his best movie outside of the the science fiction genre. But he's sort of tended toward these fair to middling action movies and crime dramas, things like that, right? American Gangster, Mm -hmm. Matchstick Men are the titles that are coming to mind. Robin Hood recently. And Robin Hood. And now at the age of 74, older than I would have thought he is, he's turning back not only to sci-fi, but to the Alien franchise and making what was very vaguely and enigmatically marketed as a prequel to Alien. Upon seeing Prometheus, I feel like it pretty much is a straight-up prequel to Alien. It's not obscure or remote the way that it relates to the story of Alien, although none of the characters are mentioned. I mean, I guess they couldn't have been because they they wouldn't be born yet when this movie takes place. Right. And in fact, watching it, I felt like at the end, I think we can just go ahead and jump into some of the spoilers a little bit here. You get to the end of the film, I felt like it was going to line up perfectly. In fact, I think a lot of people were watching this film waiting for that moment where we would get to see the quote-unquote space jockey, that character that basically starts everything in Alien, where they land on the planet and they find that creature in that vessel, whatever it's doing there, and basically all hell starts to break loose. That space jockey figure, as it's come to be known, we basically get a shot at the end of this movie that you feel like is that moment. It's, It's almost a replica. It looks just like... That moment, you think, okay, this is where Alien starts, and then it doesn't happen. Ridley Scott takes it in a completely different direction. He says, nope, we're not there yet. This isn't happening. And so he does, he kind of subverts where you think it might be going. I, to me, that was that was somewhat of a lazy deferral and a little bit of a, a, a teaser for, you know, however many movies are going to come next about right. this universe. And I felt like this movie raised way too many questions that it didn't answer, even though I know that it's also a movie about unanswerable questions. But so let's get to the actual meat of the matter. So we start off, I think that the best part of the movie is the first five minutes or so, but we start off with these really stunning shots of this seemingly alien landscape. It really does look otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And I suspected at first that it might be a CGI universe, but apparently that was filmed in Iceland, and those are real places on planet Earth. Which is amazing, yeah. Quite incredible. And so after these, you know, incredible 3D shots, and I did think that the 3D in the, these these scenes was pretty impressive, we zero in on this, this this figure who's, I guess, an alien, right? Who's we never It's never really quite explained who he is, but he's this naked, kind of marble-skinned, extremely uh, cut-looking buff alien who we witness ingesting this weird substance that sort of looks like 
bubbling caviar it's black to me. goo. Right. And, and it seems to be some sort of engineered substance. Then he dies in a spectacularly gross way. And the organic material of his body kind of falls into this spectacular waterfall. Mm-hmm. And we get a, a CGI-style close-up of this of mutating DNA, basically, if I remember it right, or right. cell formation or something. And so the idea is that, I guess, he's somehow sacrificed his body, melded with whatever this substance is, to create new life. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I actually thought that that was a really, really rich beginning and that the, the mythology that was being laid in place was going to kind of blossom into this incredible thing. But I don't think I ne- ever really quite understood what the relationship of that guy's death is to life on Earth. He's supposed to have somehow created humanity in that moment. I think that's the implication, or at least that's what I took away from it as well, is that, yeah, there's no there's no Adam and Eve. There's this engineer, as they call them in the film. That's their word for these creator figures, these godlike figures that they have a hunch may have created humanity. And and this character, just like we got the space jockey and alien, we have this character who's come to be known in the alien lore as the sacrifice engineer. There's this notion that he's he's sacrificed himself to then, as you said, kind of spread his DNA and start life. He's, he's doing this for mankind, to create mankind. I think it's supposed to harken back on some level to the title of Prometheus and this character of Prometheus, the Titan God, who, who stole fire from Zeus to give to mankind. This character is, is similarly sacrificing himself. Oh, interesting. To I, had, I had read Prometheus. Humanity. I had read the metaphor of Prometheus, which is the ship's name, the name right. of the spaceship in the movie, as that the, the Earth people were the Prometheans, that they were the ones who were doing this Greek kind right. of hubristic overreaching, trying to find the origins of life. I think that's life. probably there as well. But yeah, that was something that occurred to me that maybe he's almost this Promethean character who's giving himself up. Does he know that he's doing it? Is he doing it with great intentions? He Does he know even what's going to happen? How do we know? You know, does Ridley Scott and, and the writers know? But there's this notion that he is giving up his life to create more life. To me, the deep mythology is going a little too deep there because even this term sacrifice engineer that you say never appears in the movie. Maybe that's part of, of course, the yeah. fanboy lore, but it's exactly, not something right. that's ever explained in the movie. So no. so after this weird sort of prologue where we see that happen with no explanation, um, we Cut to, I guess, the present day of the movie, which is 2089, I think, mm-hmm. when it begins. And these two archaeologists in love, who I'm not going to be able to stop myself from being making fun of the entire <laughs> time, um, played by Numi Rapace and uh, what's the guy's name? Logan the Tom Marshall Hardy lookalike? Green. Logan Marshall Green. And so, so they're a couple and they're also archaeologists. And we see them exploring this prehistoric cave where they, they witness this kind of um, scene that they've seen in, in archaeological sites all over the world where early man is shown reaching for this kind of formation of five stars, right? And in, in a big leap, they make this extrapolation that this must mean that alien life somehow contacted early man and that out there somewhere are the origins of mankind. And then we skip ahead only four years. And in four years, they've managed to get a very rich tycoon played by Guy Pierce in loads of age makeup to underwrite this space mission to go and find the origins of human life, right? It seemed like mm-hmm. a very fast, the grant writing process must have been very successful. Exactly. Because it's a pretty crackpot notion, but they, yeah. they managed to get this 17-person crew on the spaceship Prometheus, and they're heading out into deep space to go to this Earth-like planet. Why? Just just because it's an Earth-like planet, they think that has to be the place. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Um, but they're heading off for the moon of this distant solar system, of some planet in a distant solar system, to um, to try to find the origins of life. So let's go over who's on the ship. Let's 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 okay. outline yeah. the crew here. You've got Shaw, as you said, Numi Rapace, and Charlie Holloway, played by Logan Marshall Green, the couple, and then also Charlize Theron plays. Meredith Vickers, I believe her name is, who is kind of the corporate overseer. In some ways, she's kind of like the Paul Reiser character in Aliens, who's there to to make sure everything just runs smoothly as it's so supposed to. So you wouldn't say she's the, the commander Wayland of Corp. the ship? Is Idris Elba the commander Idris of the Elba, ship? Idris Elba, he's the captain of the ship. And, and that's one of the things that comes up throughout the film is who's really in charge here. It's a scientific mission. And at one point, even when Waylon appears via 
holograph or whatever. Waylon being the Guy Pierce. Waylon the guy. guy Pierce character who is supposedly dead. He appears and speaks to them and lays out this mission. He says that Holloway and Shaw are in charge, but we also have a captain, Idris Elba, as you said, and we also have Meredith Vickers who runs the ship like she's the captain. So you have different interests here, obviously, trying to be served as, as this film goes on. Those are the main characters. There are also Oh, then some... David. Don't forget about David. Oh, yes. We can't forget Michael Fassbender as David, the, the android who plays a really large role in this film. In fact, I would say in many ways it's his film. He's, he's largely the protagonist of this movie. He drives a lot of the action of this film and uh, is really fascinating to watch. I'm a big Michael Fassbender fan. I think this is a great performance of his. I loved watching that droid character be a variation on previous droid characters, very different than, for example, Ian Holm in The First Alien. Right, or, or Hal 9000, who he yes. also sometimes occasionally echoes, or Jude Law's character in AI, yeah. right? He seems like he's incorporating the history of android characters while making something that's completely his own. I agree with you about Fassbender. I mean, he really has this almost superhuman gift to save movies. I wouldn't say he saves this movie. I think this movie has a lot else going for it, although mm-hmm. on the whole, it never finally worked for me. But Shame, for example, was a movie I think you liked a lot more than me. But I, at, at once, I thought the movie was absolute tripe. And then I thought Michael Fassbender was brilliant in it. So yeah, he has that no, power. There's no doubt he was. And, and there's something really interesting about his character where he is a droid, but he acts very human. And I love that touch because what they set up in the film is that he's a character who has been studying for years while they're all sleeping for that four-year span and before that, presumably. In suspended animation. In suspended, like right, the cryo-sleep right? or whatever. He has been studying human beings. He's been trying to understand them. He's been trying to be more like them. In fact, there's a great scene I love in the film where we cut to that ship and he's watching Lawrence of Arabia on TV. And in fact, he's trying to make himself look more like Peter O'Toole. Right, he, he actually, dyes the roots he dyes of his hair. His hair Although he, why he has to dye his hair, I don't quite understand since he's not organic. Why <laughs> right. does his hair grow? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But he's he's studying him, and I don't think it's by accident that he's watching Lawrence of Arabia for a couple reasons. I think you could make the argument that that Lawrence character in some ways is is the model of an Englishman, and maybe the model of a man. And of course, when you're dealing with a film where this whole issue of what defines us as humans and striving to be human. There's even the suggestion, perhaps, there's this Pinocchio element to David where it almost is suggested that does he want to be a real boy? You know, does he want to be... And real boy is used, right? At one point, the that Charlie phrase Holloway is used character at one says point. you're not yeah. a real boy. And so that kind of, kind of invokes that. So he's looking at this human ideal, and he wants to be like him. Of course, I also don't think it's by accident that the scene from Lawrence of Arabia that they pick is a scene in which Peter O'Toole is holding the lighter or he has the match and he's doing the trick where he can hang on and and not let it bother him he says the trick is to not, not let the fire the bother you. of course again hearkening back to prometheus stealing fire from zeus i think it's another call ah, nice to prometheus Very there nice catch. Of yeah, i love the scene where where the android watches lawrence of arabia including just the imagination of technology and it which was sort of blade runner like i yeah. loved the the quick moments there weren't enough of them where this this movie just imagined not just the you know um the aliens of the future but the sort of domestic technology of the future and he's in this kind of wrap around room where the screen almost makes like a half moon shape around him and especially in in 3d with the high Mm -hmm. definition it just looks great it makes you wish that you were in that future when you could watch home movies that way yeah and i think for me one of the real strengths of this film and it sounds like it did ultimately work for me i think there are there are a lot of issues i have with it especially in the second half of the film but i think i liked a little bit more than you and one of the things i really respected about it and and was was keying into was something that he did in alien as well which i love the way ridley scott thinks about scale and i just think of some of those glorious shots not only at the beginning of the film as you said with the water falls that seem like they had to be CGI because they're so overpowering almost. They're so huge. But when they land on that on that planet and you see the 
just the epicness of those shots. And even when they're in these tunnels and they're, they're looking around, they basically are looking for these engineers. They think they might be in this, this cave system. And they go through there. The way he shoots the, the humans in that space just really minimizes them and constantly shows sort of it reinforces the folly of what they're doing, that they're, they're way out of their element here. They, they may think they're godlike and they, they have the power to go talk to the people who created them, but they really they're up against forces of nature here that are really beyond them. I agree. And you're citing all the things that I, I really loved about the movie now and why I liked the first hour so much mm-hmm. and why I was patient with all the, the, the murky details of the story and the motives of the characters and, and what the deep mythology was all going to finally mean. I'd, I was really patient with that up until I would say the last half hour or mm-hmm. so because I just I really appreciated the universe that the movie was building and how, how fun it was to be right. invited into it. But then once they do start finding the aliens, I mean, please, please tell me you, you, you experienced some, some disappointment at that part in the story. Well, it depends what part you're talking about. When we first meet the alien when they they first go into this lair and we see more of that black ooze and something is going on they've somehow disturbed the 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 temperature in the room and and they've caused things to go a little bit haywire when that first starts happening and we we first see the the creepiness or the gore factor that really happens more when they get back on the ship i think which i think we can obviously talk about they get ahead of one of these engineer figures back to the ship and that's when we get the first kind of really gory sci-fi special effects moment all that stuff i liked i loved the creepiness that made me think of alien when you have this movie that's just kind of humming along scientific mission everyone's going about their business then all of a sudden sudden horror this jolt of horror i really like that where they start to get into trouble is with these two other characters that are almost there for comic relief. Fifield, I think his name is, in Milburn. And they get lost. They go off on their own. And first of all, that doesn't really make any sense because they've mapped out this entire canyon or whatever they're in. And they're in constant communication with the captain. So it seems kind of ridiculous that they would somehow get lost. But the movie needs them to get lost, basically. And there's a moment where you've got these these figures who are very scared and they see this slimy snake-like figure or whatever come up out of the black ooze and they they basically go right up to it and and let it attach itself to them and you're you're thinking really i mean you would really you would really you have no you're on this foreign planet this foreign creature, and you're just going to go up to it and treat it like it's a nice cat you want to pet. Yeah, no, these guys violate the Star Trek Prime Directive like there's no tomorrow. And, th- and that guy's <laughs> right. a life scientist, a biologist, exactly. the guy who comes right up to that weird, <laughs> slimy, gray snake creature, beautifully art-directed little thing that's sort of really sexual. It's sort of like penile and vaginal both at once, <laughs> right. and it's just really, really, like, ooey. And he just grabs right for it. Oh, hi, little buddy. I mean, right. he, he kind of deserves to bite it at that he moment. He does, yeah. Those guys both die in a horrible way. And then during the investigation to go and recover their bodies or to discover what happened to them, rather. Oh, it's it's on that mission, right, that um, that David puts a little bit of, of – he essentially poisons Charlie Holloway, the yes. scientist, the this male member the, of the scientist. This is one of the key couple. questions of the movie, yeah. And, and so here's, this, here's what we couldn't spoil last night. It was really fun talking about Prometheus with you guys last night at the live film spotting. But we couldn't really get into couldn't the down into and dirty details of, I think – maybe the overweening question story-wise, dramatic conflict-wise of the movie, which is what are David's motives, right? Why does he slip a Mickey, basically a sort of alien Mickey, into the drink of Charlie Holloway and thereby sentence him to a really horrible bodily invasion and death? Yeah, I absolutely. This is one of the, the fundamental questions of the film. I know when I walked out, the first thing I said to my co-host, Josh, who was there at the screening with me, was, okay, what's your take on that? Why did he do it? Because there are so many potential motives that come up throughout the film as the story goes on, one of them being that what ends up happening is we're told early in the film that his girlfriend, the archaeologist Shaw, is unable to have a baby. They have sexual relations the night 
that he gets infected with this black goo. And we come to find later that she's been impregnated with a creature, with obviously something that comes from this black goo. So you think that David foresaw that whole outcome? So that's the big question, because the movie almost makes it seem like, did he know that? Was that his end goal? And he's very protective of the fact that he wants to put Numi Rapace away in a in a, a cryo sleep and bring her back to Earth or wherever they're going. And, and there's there's sort of this notion that goes back to Alien that we want to study this and maybe he's got some motives that are ulterior. And perhaps he planned this all along. And then you start to ask, well, could he have really could he have really foreseen that they'd have sex that night? And probably not. My take on it is actually, as much as there are some interesting theories I think we can throw out, I think it's actually one of the more practical things about the film that I think the film sets up. There's a point in the film where... They go down to that planet, and as we said, they find the head of one of the engineers. And the whole point of this mission is to talk to their creators, to talk to these characters that they've called engineers. And as we learn later, as we spoil this even more, is that the the boss, Mr. Whalen, is actually on board the ship. And this is all about his goal, ultimately, about finding the key to immortality. Right. So Whalen wasn't dead after all. He wasn't dead. He's there to talk to his creators and presumably find some secret elixir or find out what the, the secret is to being like them, to, to living forever. That's, that's his ultimate goal. And they find that head, they bring it back to the ship, and Shaw does some experiments on it where they think maybe they can get this thing back to life, essentially. And it does come back to life and starts to freak out so much that they, they have to destroy it. So In a very The Thing-like moment, very, very John carpenter You're right. And so that's the, that's the moment in the film where that's their one chance to talk to their creators, to essentially talk to God, their God. It created them, and it fails. Not too long after that, there's a scene where we see David talking to someone, and we don't know who it is. And Meredith Vickers comes up and says, what did he say? And what we can piece together later is that he was talking to Waylon, that Waylon has actually been giving him some orders. And I think that what was happening is David was filling him in on the process, and Waylon said, try harder, right? That's what, that's what Vickers says. What did he say? And Michael Fassbender says, he said, try harder. I think the implication of that is they had this shot at figuring out the secret to immortality of talking to the engineer, do something else. You need to, you need to do something drastic to find some solution here, to, to take the next step in the right. scientific process. And that's process. when he gets the idea of the He gets the, the idea that he found this black goo that is clearly something organic. There's clearly life here and it can, it can cause life and he just decides to use Charlie as his guinea pig. Right. So he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. I don't he think just he knows what's going to happen. I think to the, bring the organism home in his body in some way. I think he's essentially following orders. Now, I love to speculate that David himself may have other motives that maybe he could have foreseen. We know that he knows lots of intimate details about Elizabeth Shaw's life. So he may know that she can't have a baby. And he might be playing some kind of interesting game where he's going to say, okay, you came here to, to find God, to... to mingle with your creators, well, the only way to know God is to try to be a God yourself. And he, he sort of gives them the ability to create life, which otherwise she didn't have before. So I think there's potential things there. Maybe he just wants to study the creature that she's eventually going to give birth to. And, and there's, there's those elements. But I think ultimately at its core, he's following orders. He's doing what Waylon wants him to do. And I think that he doesn't know what's going to happen when he infects Charlie. But he knows something interesting is going to happen. And so he is going to use him as his guinea pig. He's going to infect him and see what happens and, and study him and see if something comes out of it. That then by taking that engineer's DNA, maybe that's the key. Maybe that's what's going to ultimately let Waylon 
live forever. I want to talk more about belief and faith and doubt and how all of that figures into these various characters' motives and into the, the movie's mythology as a whole. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This week, the spoiler special is delighted to be sponsored by Audible. It's one of my favorite sponsors, actually, because I know that when we're selling Audible, we're selling a product that our listeners will actually use, right? If you're a podcast person, Audible is a natural, and I use it myself all the time. So Audible is the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio content on the web. They have more than 100,000 titles, books, magazines, newspapers, radio plays, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And Audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And there you can choose your free book from their vast library. So we usually like to recommend an Audible title that usually has something to do with the, the topic at hand of the day. And I was searching around under aliens, sci-fi, various, I mean, tons and tons of titles came up that looked interesting. But the one that I really felt like downloading and listening to, maybe on my on my trip home from Chicago, is uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Book 3, the Douglas Adams book. That whole series is just fabulous. And I haven't read it since high school, but it was I was never a sci-fi person, but I just love the tone, the kind of speculative, crazy humor writing mm-hmm. mixed with speculative science fiction of those books. So um, they have that book. It's narrated by Martin Freeman, which is also very promising, uh, who was Tim, of course, in the British version of The Office and who will be the Hobbit in the upcoming uh, Peter Jackson Hobbit movie. I love Martin Freeman, too. And he seems like a natural with his sort of sense of the absurd for reading a Douglas Adams book. So that's our audible recommendation. So we're more than halfway through the spoiler now, and we still haven't talked about the movie's big, gross-out yeah, kind of money scene, piece. right? The one that everybody comes out going, oh, my God. And to me, it was not necessarily an oh, my God of, of admiration. Um, I'm not sure that I'm quite sure what that scene is doing in there, but we, we have to describe it as, as graphic as it is. So um, as we know, uh, Charlie Holloway, who's the male half of the archaeologists in love couple, has died a horrible death from being poisoned with his alien toxin by the android. The android, David, informs Numi Rapasa's character, Elizabeth, that she's pregnant. And she's pregnant with something that's not human. So do you want to describe the graphic scene that follows from there? So this thing is growing rapidly. She's three months pregnant, even though it just happened 10 hours ago, I think is what she says. And her immediate response is she's got to get this out of her. He wants to put her to sleep and take her back to Earth to study it or do whatever. And when she wakes up and David's not there, she goes in and she uses this piece of equipment. I can't remember the exact name they give it. It's a Metapod or something like that. It's sort that, of an that, auto-surgery It's machine, an auto-surgery, right? right? You, you put yourself in it. It scans you. You kind of tell it what's wrong with you and it will fix you which would be a really nice tool to have. And she gets in it and it says, we can't do a cesarean section, which also opens up some questions about well, why wouldn't it be able to do says, that? It's one of my favorite lines in the movie is it says, this machine was programmed for a man. Yeah, it basically says, sorry, <laughs> you're a woman. can't deal with pregnancy. Right, which then opens up these questions of, well, it was there probably all along for Wayland. It was designed for him and not for Vickers, who we think it's for earlier in the film. And she gets in it. It says, we can't do a C-section. So she has to instruct it to do abdominal surgery and remove this fetus, if you will, from her body. And what we see play out over, I don't know how long it actually is. It feels like 20 minutes, even though it's probably less than two or maybe even 90 seconds. She she has this surgery performed. We see this piece of equipment actually cut open her stomach and reach in and take out this horrible squid-like figure. And then we see that squid-like figure as it's being held, kind of trying to attack her or it's got its little tentacles getting close to her and she has to wiggle her way out of this thing. It's after, a pretty brilliantly imagined scene in terms of the choreography. Her, yeah, right? the her, her stomach stapled back up so that, you know, she can she can be put back together. It's it's horrifying. And I, I imagine that maybe you might have had a different reaction to it being a mother than I did, where maybe it was even more horrifying. And I was watching it from the pure visceral, intense level of 
a great action scene where I was just horrified. I was I was there in my seat, like almost cowering because of the intensity and the horror of that moment. And I could I could put myself in her shoes and imagine that thing being inside me and wanting it out as fast as possible. And that it's worth it to have unanesthetized Absolutely. auto surgery. Just, just get it out as fast as you can. And Well, I have to that, say, I mean, the scene itself was incredibly effective. What, what, what didn't work for me was just the plausibility of everything that came after. It just all happened so quickly within the space of a few minutes. And so the idea that with these stomach staples in her body, she's going to go on to have like three more action scenes in a row. Like right away. Why does it need to be paced quite in that way? I actually think it it really would have added to the movie, not just its plausibility in terms of the healing process from your alien abortion, but, but, but just in terms of, of, of the character development on the, on the ship, if instead of immediately running from that in her skivvies to go, go fight some more aliens that, you know, she had sort of reintroduce herself into the life on the ship. Maybe she has to cover up the abortion. Maybe she has to, you know, tell David that she didn't do it or something. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. could have happened. I'm, I'm not going to replot the entire movie. But the plausibility for me started to fall apart after that moment. It just yeah. sort of seemed like we were having extreme things thrown at us for the sake of being extreme. I agree that that's where after being very careful about setting up this film, what ends up happening, setting up all the stakes and who these people are in that last 30 minutes or so, what ends up happening is things like that. They start to start to kind of lose some of the key details in a hurry to get everything moving forward. And not only is it just kind of unbelievable that she would be out there doing all the things she's doing, what happens too is that no one seems surprised. No one, no one on the ship really seems to be aware of the fact that she just went through this horrible process. <laughs> and, and even that, no one seems to be aware of the fact that, that all of a sudden this guy who was supposed to be dead, Waylon the the mastermind behind all this he just shows up and you have people like the captain Idris Elba just taking it for granted that he's now alive and he's out there looking for the engineers i mean imagine being that captain of the ship and finding out that you've been stowing away this guy who was supposed to have been dead for 2 years there's never a moment where we see anybody on the ship reckon with that it's just sort of taken for granted that that oh yeah okay this character's here and now he's going to be injected into scenes there's something there's something missing there that you wonder if some things got cut and there will probably be a future Ridley Scott cut that fills in some of those holes. Yeah, I mean, I appreciated the more stately pacing of the be- of the beginning of the film, and then it almost seemed like I don't know, as you say, if it's a result of cuts or or the need to ramp up the action so that it can pass as a summer blockbuster. But it really did seem like things became all about you know running down dark corridors from from gooey screeching yeah. creatures for the last half hour. And it's not that the gooey screeching creatures weren't effective and scary at times, but I sort of started to lose the point of the whole movie. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's spoil the very last scene. And, and what happens when they go into, I guess, what I think of as the alien control room, this this abandoned, almost like a ship's deck or something mm-hmm. at the at the heart of the, uh, the co- alien complex that they're exploring. They do go in and they find that there is a one of these engineers is still alive and has actually been sleeping almost like the humans do, has been put to sleep. And I think the implication is he was put to sleep while these other engineers were supposed to be devising this big weapon of mass destruction, that the engineers have somehow decided that they're going to destroy Earth, they're going to destroy life that they created for whatever reason. And that's what Shaw really wants to get at at the end of the film. This is the big question hanging over the movie is, okay, Why would you create they created all this us, life but then only to destroy you it. want to destroy us, which actually, real quick diversion, I think that that's one of the interesting thematic tie-ins back to Shaw, right? She can't have a baby, and she's upset about that, and then she finally gets to create life, and then she's not happy with the life that she created and she wants to destroy it just like the engineers do right so we don't really know why but we know that they want to destroy it so i think the implication is is that they are supposed to wake this figure up when they're done with their mission and instead they get woken up by wayland and david and these human beings and the guy this figure the engineer 
goes a little mad and says, I'm going to fulfill my mission and basically sets out to destroy the planet. And they have to stop him. That's their goal. So I guess what we're supposed to take away from this last scene is that is is that the, the theological question that's kind of driven the movie, where did human life come from? Why were we created? What do our creators want from us? Why are they asking us to return? Right? All of these these big speculative questions that are put in place in the first hour kind of resolve into this muddled mess at the end where the guy is woken up and understandably, right, he's woken up by alien creatures after thousands of years of sleep. He's not in a good mood. He destroys them. I don't know that that necessarily is an argument against the existence of God, as Whalen seems to say when, spoiler, he is killed by the creature, right? He's lying there dying. Um, The Michael Fassbender android has his head screwed off his body by the creature, but just like Ian Holm, he doesn't necessarily die as a result, right? Bishop and aliens too, yeah. Right. Yeah. So having your head removed isn't necessarily a a death sentence for for Michael Fassbender. And there's a really long and somewhat comic section of the movie where his head, his 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 not disembodied, what's the word, his decapitated head is lying there issuing instructions to Numi Rapace and philosophizing with Wayland. And Wayland's last words as he's dying to the robot head are um, there's nothing is there or something like that. Right. right? He's essentially saying, you know, after it all, there's there's no purpose. There's no God. And our, our existence is meaningless. And I love Fassbender's line reading of his response, right? Doesn't he just say, I know? Right. And then he says, have a safe journey or something like that. He's yeah. seeing him off into the abyss. Of yeah, which does, it does kind of work because as we're told earlier in the film, the difference one character says between a human being and the droid is that the human supposedly has a soul and there's something more. And what, what David is affirming there is, well, actually, we're both the same. There's really probably nothing else for either of us. Right. But, but it's, it's really hard to know how, what, how the movie feels about right. that because the Numi Rapaz character, on the other hand, has never let go of her faith. She wears a cross throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, I think, very heavy-handed drama and talk about the cross and David taking it off of her body and her putting it back. Um, but she, at the end, takes off with the head of Michael Fassbender and his body, <laughs> but separately, right? Yeah. And there's a kind of great scene where she, the, she has to lower him out of the cave she lowers the body first, the headless body, on a on a line, a rope, and then she pops the head into a bag, apologizing to him as she as she zips it closed. And the two of them take off at the end. Oh wait, but we haven't even talked about the uh, the the destruction of the the mothership at right. the end. They have to basically go on a suicide mission. They have to stop this vessel that this engineer is heading back to destroy life as we know it. And she basically Shaw convinces the captain that. There's going to be no life to go back to if you don't sacrifice yourself and stop this ship no matter what the cost. And all they can do is ram right into it and try to bring it down, which is what they they successfully do. Which I think that kind of kamikaze mission at the end and, and Idris Elba agreeing to sacrifice himself along with some other crew members to bring the mothership down, the alien mothership, it would have been much more powerful if we had had a better um – sense of the relationship among the crew the whole Definitely. time. I'm just thinking of Aliens, not a Ridley Scott movie, a James Cameron movie, but one thing that was so great about it was the different personalities on the ship, Bill Paxton, right, the way they all related to each other, yep. and even though they didn't all like each other, they seemed like colleagues, they seemed like workmates, yep. and watching their relationship develop was a huge part this of the This is a problem I had movie. with the film as well, and it's not just Aliens, it's an Alien as well, the, the first one. You get to meet every character on the ship and you get to know their personalities. There are no sort of anonymous figures running around in this movie. It wants us to be invested in this moment that happens at the end. Two of these other characters decide to go along with the captain and sacrifice themselves. And other than hearing them joke around a few times, we haven't really gotten to know them at all. And then come to find there are actually a lot of people on the ship who are just anonymous figures that don't have a name, who never speak. And then 
you lose track of them, as we said, as things are going on. I think that was one of the real flaws of the film is yeah, that we don't get to know s- them. A more skeletal crew that had known each other better. And, and if, as, as I say, if instead of, you know, sort of running around wildly packing in action scenes at the end, if there had been some moment of exposition for each of these characters, how do they feel about what's going on? How, what does the mission mean to them at this point? Then, then the ending would have been much more powerful. Yeah, I but think, so, too, real quick, I just want to note, because I know I've seen some people bring this up on the Internet there's some disbelief over the fact that they have to ram this ship because they don't have any weapons. And the captain explains, we don't have any weapons because this isn't a military vessel. This is a scientific mission. That does seem a little bit odd, though, because they're going off to this planet. They have no idea what they're going to encounter. You would think maybe a shrewd guy like Whalen would think, maybe we should pack a few guns. We should have a, a ship that could do some damage if we ever faced any kind of problems out here. And they don't. And it occurs to me that I think it's actually probably just a design of the story where they need everybody to die at the end of the film, right? They need everybody. They have to bring down the ship by killing everybody because the film needs to end with Shaw and David going off on their mission. You can't have anybody else going back to Earth and saying, guess what we found? We found the creators of life. Everyone has to die so that only Shaw is left. I feel like maybe that's the reason why they didn't have any weapons. I don't know. That, that would make sense, right? Story-wise, you've got to get everybody out of the picture in order to set up yes, the, the Yes, and the everyone else does die, so... So at, at the end, which, what I thought should have been the end is actually sort of the false ending because there's an, another little little tag at the end that we'll discuss. But Shaw Numi Rapace is taking off with the decapitated robot android, and uh, and the idea is that she's going to continue exploring, right? And there's a I think somewhat hokey little speech, a voiceover at the end of her saying, "I will continue to explore." The idea being that she hasn't given up, she hasn't completely written off the idea that that. There could be some good. I mean, I think here it actually becomes a question of, is there any good in the universe, right? right. Is there any, any such thing as goodwill? And is there any way to find someone who's well disposed toward humans? Or is it really the fact that we're just, you know, flies and that wanton gods are taking us apart for their sport? And I think the movie sort of leaves that question open. I don't, I don't think we're supposed to really know the answer at the end. And I don't really need to know the answer to that question. So after their ship takes off, it seemed to me that that would have been roll the credits time. But instead, we get one little tag back at the ship you want to describe. So after that bit with Shaw, they go back to the wreckage of the ship. And we get this classic alien kind of xenomorph moment where we see that that engineer that was trying to bring down humanity. We see that infected with the creature, the creature actually that came out of Shaw and has now grown to, to full size. Which makes you wonder why it needs a human womb, right? If it can right. gestate in any kind well, of body. I was wondering that about all the alien films, frankly. Why, after they're born, do they need to go back inside someone? I'm not sure completely about the science there of those figures, but there is this moment where we get the the alien birth, if you will, the the figure that is going to come to define what we see later in the alien films. The so-called xenomorph, right? right? That creature with the mouth that comes out of its mouth. And it is a scary creature, but that moment for me was too on the nose. We get it, right? And yeah. It's supposed to be a movie about evolution and mutation and that this creature is constantly mutating. So the idea that generations before Sigourney Weaver comes along, it's already assumed its, its form. It just seemed to me like a little bit of a sop to the audience, like, here's your alien. Here's your alien, right. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it was really needed. In fact, I, I think at the screening I saw, I saw it with critics, so maybe they're a little bit more jaded, but they, they laughed. There was a little bit of a chuckle at the end, like, oh, thanks, you had to give us the obligatory alien. I'm not sure that we really needed it. But, you know, the moment before, there's no doubt when you're talking about Sean David going off and looking for answers, there's no doubt that there's some hokiness to it. I think there's some hokiness to some of the lines. I actually think the score of this film doesn't work really well. There's a lot of scenes that are kind of ominous and heavy, and you've got these it's swelling strings. Yeah. It's really overscored. And there's some lines that are overwritten. And one of them is she has a line where she's talking to David, and he says, why do you need to know? Why does it matter why they wanted to destroy us? And she says, well, it matters to me because 
I'm human and you're not. And it's just the way it's the way it's read. We we knew that. We understood the distinction. We really didn't need them to hit us over the head with it. That all said, that moment worked for me still on the whole because I like the fact that I think what it reinforced is if you kind of look at the film as ultimately asking the question about what what defines us as human, which I think Ridley Scott did also brilliantly in Blade Runner, you get this moment where the the answer is essentially what defines us is we're always going to be seeking answers. We may never find it, but what what separates us from maybe a character like David or these alien figures is that we're always going to feel compelled to try to find the answers to our purpose and why we're here. I agree. I mean, I love that as an ending. I just think I just think it was too too hammered in by the yeah. voiceover at the end mm-hmm. and the sort of inspirational shot of the, the the ship taking off into the sky. I think even just a conversation between the two of them at the moment she's lowering him down might have done it. If you really think about it, it's quite rich and compelling in itself without any voiceover, without any explanation. Agreed. Just the idea of a decapitated atheist android and this Christian believer scientist heading off together into outer space to discover the origins of humanity. I mean, that's so dramatically rich that it actually makes me really look forward to the sequel to this, even though I didn't love the movie. Mm-hmm. I just I just think that this movie needs to step back a little bit from the, the, the ponderous proclamations that it feels the need to make and just, just be a sci-fi movie. I mean, sci-fi has the ideas within the story, right? Like the first alien, a great sci-fi movie yeah. doesn't, doesn't have to exposit its ideas. That's it, true. It, it just contains them in the story itself. Yeah. At the same time, I really like the fact that one of the things I really love about Aliens is that it took the essence of Alien. It picked up right where it left off, but James Cameron did something different with it. It was a new chapter. It wasn't trying to be Alien. It's much more of an action film. And also he introduces this really interesting motherhood angle where we see with Ripley and we see with the Alien as well when we get to the end of that film. So there was a different kind of theme that Cameron was touching on in that movie. And here this adds to the Alien universe. It's not trying to do exactly what those films did. It's trying to tackle something larger, much more grandiose and much more pretentious. It's really trying to get at I give it credit for at least trying to do that, but I agree with you that there are a lot of problems where you have, for example, we go back to the moment where they are explaining what mission they're on. They're telling the other people why they're here, basically, what we're here to do, and we're here to meet these engineers. And one character says, but how do you know How do you know that they're really the people who created us? Why are we here to talk to them? She has that refrain. Shaw says, because it's what I choose to believe. Well, unfortunately, that... that may sound grandiose and work for the theme of the film because she has faith. But in that moment, I, as a viewer, just like the scientists on that ship, I want to hear something concrete. I want to hear well, I was really hoping in that moment that the screenwriters were going to be able to give me a 30 second snapshot of why they're there and what evidence they have that this is happening that would have set up the whole film in a really good way. Instead, it's because I choose to believe it. And so the screenwriter is basically saying, Hey, audience, just go along with us. Just right. trust us. Right, and the screenwriter us. we should note is Damon Lindelof of right. Lost, or the co-screenwriter anyway. So he is someone who's maybe more interested in piling up riddle upon riddle than in having that moment where, where everything becomes clear. I mean, obviously, you don't want a scientist, you know, with a pointer in front of a whiteboard breaking it all down for you, right? But mm-hmm. just to, to even believe in the plausibility of the mission and the fact that, you know, all these people would sign on. They convince Whalen to spend billions of dollars to create the ship and come out to space. How did they do it? Right. Some it's like we need a little more science and a little we less do. fiction. Well, Adam, this was so much fun. Now I wish I could fly to Chicago every few weeks and spoil a movie with you. I'd love you. to have you. That'd be great. It's really a thrill to be on. I'm a big fan of all things Slate. So thank you, Dana. Oh, well, thanks so much. And we'll do it again, maybe remotely sometime. And thanks also to WBEZ Studios in Chicago for mm-hmm. letting us use your, your taping space. The producer of this podcast is Andy Bowers. The executive producer of all Slate podcasts is also Andy Bowers. So for Adam Kempinar in Chicago, I'm Dana Stevens.